Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, my guest is attorney Jonathan Raymond. He's a partner at Green Q Law. We're going to talk about vehicle forensics and how both people that are you know, pulled over by police in a traffic stop or in an accident may unintendedly uh, create evidence that could be for or against their case and their circumstance. So I think it's going to be a very interesting call. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for coming. Thanks very much, Richard. Happy to join you. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background as an attorney, and then how did you come to focus on this intricate area of the law? Sure. So, you know, like you said, I'm I'm a attorney in Chicago. You know, my my practice is focused on criminal defense, both at the federal and state level, as well as the appellate level, and also civil rights cases. So, you know, I've, I've been an attorney. I'm I'm a partner in the law firm of Breen and Pugh in Chicago. And, you know, I also serve on the board of directors of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. I, I've been a lawyer for about 13 years now. And a number of years ago, I was asked to take on experts in a certain homicide case that me and my my partners, Tom Breen and Todd Pugh, were trying. And I was tasked with the experts in the case. And one of the experts was a guy from a company called Burla, which is essentially the Celebrite for vehicles. And, you know, Burla is a technology that has been around for for about a decade plus, but is not well known even to, you know, a lot of criminal defense practitioners. At, at the time that we tried the case, it was right before the pandemic. So it was October of 2019. Burla was a company in the Beltway in Maryland that was specializing in doing these dumps of vehicles and, you know, parsing and analyzing the data. And there was, you know, one of their analysts that came out and testified in this homicide case. And it was a homicide case that we don't have the death penalty in Illinois anymore. But if we did, it, it was the type of case that that would have been a death penalty case. It was it was a homicide. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a homicide of a nine-year-old. So the state was not sparing any resources in, you know, hiring experts. They flew in a DNA expert from Australia who testified about, you know, a certain type of DNA testing that he had originated called probabilistic genotyping. And they flew in this expert from Maryland who did the extract the parsings of the data from the vehicle that was involved in the homicide. You know, there's other experts too, like there was, you know, a guy from the FBI who testified about cell site location information, but I was tasked with the experts in the case. And so I I came to learn about, you know, the Burla technology, the IV tool that they that they use. And then I found it fascinating. And it was really very much an extension of you know, computers and digital forensics that have to do with cell phones where, you know, most criminal practitioners and prosecutors are uh, familiar with Celebrite, the technology that law enforcement uses to extract 
data from cell phones and you know it can be some of the really most damning evidence in cases because you know it's it's everything it's your location it's your google you know what you're googling it's your text messages and all of all of that information that is deeply personal deeply revealing and can be deeply in, you know incriminating if in fact you know you are the person that you know is the offender in the case so but one one quick question if you marry the use of cell phones while someone's in a car driving i would think using gps and other techniques you can even very clearly say that that phone was in that car traveling that route the person obviously you know someone needs to be operating the vehicle but as long as you can corroborate that the two technologies working together like all the onboard computers for a car and for the cell phone you have the black box being corroborated i guess by the phone and vice versa like you I would guess you can have a very highly specific and accurate uh, representation of who was in the car and what was going on, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the IV tool that, that Burla uses, it becomes more and more sophisticated with every iteration and, you know, is more available to more cars. And, you know, nowadays, I mean, it used to be that, you know, the infotainment systems were only really in luxury vehicles and now they're now they're in every vehicle. And so so later on, you know, I, I was tasked with that expert, you know, did a cross examination. I'd interviewed him and, you know, gone through all these parsings and all this data uh, in a really you know, kind of a deep dive way, because I always find that, you know, there can be, especially in cell phone extractions, there can be some really, really helpful and really, really harmful things if they are really extensive, detailed extractions. And so, you know, it was it was really interesting to do that work and to to learn about the technology. And then later on, you know, a few years later, you know, serving on the board of the, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers is his board. And there's a Fourth Amendment center that NACDL has that is really doing, you know, the work that is at the forefront of technology and the Fourth Amendment around the country. So dealing with geofence warrants and, you know, keyword search warrants and, you know, cell phone extractions and stingrays, all, all of those issues. And, you know, we, we had had a case maybe a year before that homicide trial that we did that dealt with law enforcement seeking to get into a cell phone that had a passcode and that we were not just going to volunteer the passcode, you, you know, to law enforcement. So in litigating what, you know, what is referred to as kind of compelled uh, decryption of the device, you know, basically either a search warrant or a judge saying, you know, you have to do this or you're going to be held in contempt of court. You know, I, I learned a lot from Mike Price and Jumana Musa and NACDL's Fourth Amendment Center about cell phones. And, you know, a lot of stuff that I, like, I, I didn't know at all. And that I think a lot of people, they, they just don't know, even people that are working in the space of, you know, digital evidence in their cases where, you know, most folks think, well, you know, I've got a four digit passcode or a six digit passcode most of the time because those are the defaults. And so, you know, through that work, I learned that, you know, there's, you know, there's not uh, a great deal of protection when it comes to trying to you know, brute force into the device. So, you know, I, I had learned about cell phones through that and had changed, you know, my cell phone passcode to a 
12-digit passcode. Let's make a scenario and maybe you can tell me like, you know, just, I know you don't have time to prepare, but let's, let's make a scenario. Let's say like, I don't know, uh, someone's after me for some reason, I owe them money and I'm in a car and they start chasing me in their car and maybe they shoot at me once or twice and, you know, I end up getting into an accident, crashing, and then they leave. Let's say that's the scenario. Both of us have our phones on us. What are some examples of the things that you could compel discovery on and subpoena to to help prove my case and help me? Or if you're to be representing that in a, that in a was chasing, what could you do in a civil context? Oh, uh, let's do both. Let's do criminal first, and then we'll do the civil part. Yeah. Okay. So saying that maybe you are the suspect that chased you know, the purported victim vehicle, you have a cell phone, you come in to my office and engage me to represent you in an investigation, which was, you know, kind of the scenario that that I was laying out. It was in, you know, the, the cell phone case dealt with a fatal motor vehicle accident and, you know, basically a pedestrian that was hit by a vehicle that was suspected to be driven by my client. And that client had a cell phone, very much like you and your hypothetical have a cell phone and you are the suspect of law enforcement, that you chase this other vehicle, that there was an accident and that the the victim suffered some physical injury, maybe property injury. And law enforcement is pursuing any and all leads and evidence that they can to, to clear the case and, and make a charge of, you know, maybe reckless conduct, reckless discharge, aggravated discharge attempt murder against you. So, you know, I asked you, Richard, I mean, obviously this is, you know, hypothetical attorney client, you know, communication that we're having in the office in the context of, you know, representation. And I, I would ask you, you know, Richard, you have a cell phone. Yeah. I, you know, I don't need to know and I don't want to know what your passcode is, but how is your device protected? And what would you say in that Mm. scenario? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, well, I would say uh, either uh, facial recognition, or I use the thumbprints, or I have like a you know, generic four four number passcode. Okay, so generally under the law, biometrics are far less protected than passcodes. So either a pattern or a passcode, you know, digital or alphanumeric biometrics, either a thumbprint or a face, generally has much less protection under both you know, both Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment case law than just a passcode. And you know, does that mean they could compel me if it's, let's say it's thumbprint, they could compel me more easily to give my thumbprint and then use that to access the phone? Yes. Yes. Because, you know, and the case law is varied along, you know, some courts say, 
no, it's all the same, right? It's, you know, it's all, you know, it's, it's all the same, whether it's, whether it's a face, a thumb, a passcode, it's all the same. It all has the same protection. But, you know, other courts say, no, it's, it's not. A passcode is the contents of that person's mind and a person revealing the contents of their mind, like a, a combination to a, a wall safe uh, is protected under the Fifth Amendment. And for law enforcement to compel the person to give that up, that information up would be a violation of their Fifth Amendment rights. Not so, you know, these courts would say as to biometrics that presenting a face or a thumb doesn't cause you to have to reveal the contents of your mind at all. And it's very much like being asked or compelled to stand in a lineup where there's not the same protection. And so generally, you know, the way that I would counsel a client prospectively is get rid of the biometrics on your phone, you know, both because it's less protected when, you know, uh, under law enforcement scrutiny, but it's also, you know, you end up your, your thumbprint, your face, it ends up in databases that you don't necessarily, you know, want to be in. And also practically speaking, you know, it's, it's easier for, you know, folks to force their way into the phone. They can just, you know, just basically wave it in front of your face and unlock the phone, whereas they can't do that with a passcode. Generally, with passcodes, you want them to be long and alphanumeric. So most people, you know, I don't, I don't have the stats on this, but as you know, as a reference point, when I did my set of talks about a year and a half ago, I asked a room of criminal defense lawyers, you know, people that are working in this space, how many of you have a four-digit, six-digit passcode? And, you know, the vast majority of the room, probably 85 to 90% had a six-digit passcode because it's the default. And, you know, there was probably in a room of 250 lawyers and technologists, you know, I mean, there's a couple technologists, there was like four people that you know said that they had a 12 digit or more alphanumeric passcode one of them was my partner one of them was a guy that you know was a technologist at uprise so what would happen if if i had either a pattern or a four-digit passcode and i said you know your honor I, I just don't remember it the stress of the case is such that i don't remember i i can't i can't tell you even though i want to so if i had a 12 digit alphanumeric one i guess i could say or you would say as you know as my counsel your honor no human being can really remember an alphanumeric 12 digit it has to be written down somewhere and we cannot find you know where this is written down or so and so you know i I, lost. I i i couldn't say that to a court it with it, in candor because you know i have a 17 digit alphanumeric password and i remember it because not because i you know have to access you know, a cheat sheet, it's because it's a certain pattern, right? Because otherwise I wouldn't be able to remember it. But, you know, there's an argument that it is, that it is, it would be a violation of your rights to compel you to have to give up that information that it's protected under the Fifth Amendment. But there's case law that's going against that argument. And, you know, there was a case in the Illinois Supreme Court recently that, you know, the NACDL and the state affiliate, the Illinois Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, had an amicus with the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation that supported that very, prop, you know, very position. And the court supported the attorney general's position on the applicability of the Fifth Amendment. They, you know, it was a 6-1 decision. It wasn't even a, you know, a real close call. But, you know, practically speaking, Richard, if 
law enforcement has your phone and it's a four digit passcode, they don't need to go, you know, with a search warrant, which they have to get now, you know, under Riley versus California, a 2014 Supreme Court case, they have to get a search warrant. They can't just, you know, rifle through the contents of your phone because, you know, the, the Supreme Court in that case talked about you know, how highly sensitive the information that we have on our cell phones is nowadays. It's not like when you arrest somebody and, and go through their wallet or billful, the, you know, physical items. So there, right. you know, this difference between physical and digital in, you know. Well, also too, what comes to mind is like, I know there's a, you know, I don't know if it's a rule or what you call, but, you know, things are in plain sight. Like I get pulled over, let's say I have a gun on the passenger sitting there, the police <laughs> sees it. You know, they got probable cause now to do whatever. If they have to ask me to open my trunk, you know, and it's locked, you know, I guess I can refuse and maybe they can compel, maybe they can't. But so my question here is if they get into a phone, if they crack it and get into it, is everything on the phone now considered quote unquote in plain digital sight and accessible? Or can they only go to certain apps? Do they have to get separate warrants for separate aspects of the phone? like text versus uh, app usage versus uh, geolocation data, et cetera? Yeah, that's a really good, interesting question that has a few different issues baked in there. So you're talking about plain view. You know, generally you need a search warrant for people's, you know, property, person, vehicle, papers. And so, yeah, if, you know, police pull you over, you're lawfully, you know, stopped and detained. There's a there's a gun on the front seat that's in plain view. And that is an exception to the warrant requirement in the Fourth Amendment. Um, when, when we talk about digital evidence, though, it's different, right? So, you know, there's this contrast between an old case called Robinson that said that it's perfectly fine that incident to somebody's arrest that you go through their wallet and inspect photographs and, you know, different papers. That's fine. But when we're talking about cell phones and computers like infotainment systems, I would argue that, you know, that's an extension of of Riley and cell phones that it's that you need a warrant, absolutely need a warrant. And so, you know, in that context, law enforcement has to get a warrant. And so then after they are into the phone, what they can look at is that deals with the command of the warrant and how it's written. You know, practically speaking, there are warrants that I see in state court that I believe are general warrants, which have been prohibited, you know, since the founding, but that say very much, you know, will detail the investigation and then say, you know, the person had a cell phone on them at the time they were arrested. And so we should be able to basically look at everything on the phone. You know, my position, and you, you talked about this app by app, and because Celebrite can, you know, can differentiate the different data, you know, when it does its extraction and search, you know, my position always is that it needs to be tailored. You, you know, the scope of the warrant needs to be tailored to the probable cause showing within the complaint for the search warrant in the first place. You can't just say, well, we suspect this person committed a crime, and so now we want to go through his cell phone, go through his infotainment system without any nexus and no showing in terms of you know tailoring what you're searching to the probable cause showing in the first place. So in terms of you know plain view, you know that is an exception to the warrant requirement, but 
the Supreme Court has been explicit that when it comes to digital information and you know cell phones, and I would argue infotainment systems, that law enforcement absolutely has to get a warrant in that context. So you know, but that that might be different, right? So they got to get a warrant for the phone. Well, but what about? Yeah, let me give you a quick example. Like, if, let's say I have a bank with Wells Fargo and I have the Wells Fargo app, you know, to access my banking. And then I have a Gmail and I have a Gmail app. You know, the police get into the phone and they compel me to give the passcode for the Wells Fargo app, or is that a whole separate thing? And then for the email, if there's a password on there. So, so for a given app, if there's a separate password on it, does that give you any more protection or no? Or if you could just access an app with no passcode, you know, once you're on the phone, like what would be the difference in, in the eyes of the law? No, I, you know, my position would be that, you know, additional passwords that, that are required to unlock information within the cell phone, that that, that that would be a violation of your Fifth Amendment rights to compel you to give up that information. But going back to plain view, if you have a, you know, if, if your settings are such on your iPhone or your Android, that your Wells Fargo notifications are, are going off or your text messages are going off and you can read them on the notification screen and law enforcement you know, lawfully has possession of the phone, can they read the communications that are clearly displayed in plain view on the face screen of your iPhone? That's a very different question, I think the answer is, yeah, they can. It's in plain view. And, you know, it's not like they're not, you know, they're not violating your rights by putting the phone in front of your face to unlock it to, you know, to circumvent the warrant requirement. I mean, they're just, they have the, you know, the phone sitting there while you're in the interrogation room and it's going off and, you know, and there's messages from, you know, somebody with a certain name that's, you know, is a suspected accomplice of yours that's saying, you know, that is giving inculpatory information. I think that's fair game under, you know, under plain view because they're not, you know, they're not going into the phone. You know, there's a whole, you know, there, there'd be an argument about whether the cell phone is lawfully in their custody, especially if, you know, you're not in custody at the time and you're a witness and they, you know, they seize your phone without, you know, without authority or legal process. But that, I think that's kind of when plain view would come up and then, but no, in terms of, you know, having apps that have additional passcodes, I think that gives you, you know, a whole, whole nother layer of protection under the fifth amendment. But going back to something we were talking about before in terms of the difference between four digits you know, 12, 17-digit alphanumeric passcodes, you know, law enforcement may not need to go to a judge to compel you to give up that information as a suspect, you know, pre-charging or with a search warrant if they can just crack the phone anyways. You know, that's sort of what judges sometimes say. Oh, that's why. Okay. Yeah, why do they need to ask me to compel him, you know, to, to provide this information? Otherwise, you know, you could be held in contempt be jailed if you don't to purge the, you know, con contempt if they can just, they have the technology to crack the phone. Well, that's, you know, that's a different, that's, that's sort of a nuanced question because if they have your cell phone, you know, they have Richard's cell phone that's got a four digit passcode and they have my cell phone that's got a 17 digit alphanumeric password. And, you know, and, and they hook your phone and my phone up to gray key and try to, you know, break into it because they have a, the authority of a search warrant to do so, they'll get into your phone within 
half an hour, hour uh, at most. They may get into my cell phone, maybe. You know, it used to be a, a 12 digit or more passcode. It would take them a hundred years to get into my phone. I think the technology evolves all the time. And so, but a really long alphanumeric passcode, like the one that I have on my cell, cell phone, I don't, you know, I don't have biometrics and I've got this long alphanumeric passcode. I don't think, you know, I, I don't think they'll be able to get into my phone. So then they have to make additional requests of, hey, judge, you know, can you please, you know, issue an order compelling this person to provide the credentials to get into the phone because we have a search warrant or else it, it's it's another step that law enforcement would need to take, you know, and that right. take, you know, we litigate. But, but at least that, that gives you a chance to narrow the scope of, you know, of the warrant in that case, you know, in the other case, if they just crack it, then you're just reacting. But if, if this yeah. is the case and they have to have the judge hear it, you could be there and say, Your Honor, I want to limit the scope to text messages only or whatever it may be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of a lot of prosecutors would say, well, what do you mean? There's no case. You don't have a remedy at this point to be able to file, you know, a motion or a petition to quash the search warrant. But, you know, there, that that process is very much available to suspects. And we were able, you know, we were, the judge allowed us to do it on th that case from 2019, the, the fatal accident case. And actually, you know, we briefed it and the law was different back then in Illinois. And the judge said, you know, he, he read everything. He gave corporation counsel of the village time to respond, which they were thoroughly, you know, kind of miffed about what to do in this scenario. And the judge said, you know, ultimately said, yeah, you know, I, I got it. You know, I read everything. I think they're right. I didn't have jurisdiction to enter the order in the first place. I'm going to quash my own, you know, compulsion order. And so, you know, the compulsion order gets quashed. They have a search warrant. They can't get into the phone. You know, so by the time the case goes to trial, there was no, you know, they had never cracked the phone. They had it at the, you know, they had it at the digital lab, but I never got any additional discovery on that. And then ultimately, you know, the client, and it was, I did not think a righteous prosecution, it, you know, he was acquitted at trial and he should have been. There was no evidence that that what he did was reckless or anything. It was, right. you know, the scenario was a, a guy walking out into traffic, you know, while it was raining dark at night in dark clothing. And, and you know, my client didn't do anything wrong. I actually tried to help call the, you know, call nine one one, and it was just overzealous law enforcement in that scenario, trying to make a charge against him when he he was very much, you know, a tragic figure, just like the decedent and the decedent's wife. I mean, it was just a it was a terribly sad case, but it was one that that taught me a lot about you know the kind of different legal processes that that prosecutors and law enforcement can use and and how to react to them, but also be proactive when it comes right. to, you know, not creating additional evidence. And uh, can a phone be used as a honeypot? Like, let's say they take my phone and I don't know, they suspect I have two accomplices. And can they call those people on my phone or text them and try to get them to reveal damaging information? You know, or is that illegal to do so? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I think th there's a concept in the law about that the police do not have to be honest in, in their conduct. You know, I mean, they can't go in front of a grand jury and lie or, you know, go in, into court and perjure themselves. But, you know, can they in an interrogation ring, can they mislead you about what evidence they have? 
can they mislead you about, you know, an alleged accomplice who's in the other interrogation room down the hall is maybe saying they can. There's law that says they can. Can they use your property to try to compel somebody else to make, you know, incriminating statements? It doesn't seem like that would be lawful and, you know, good defenders would would say that that was a violation of, you know, the client's constitutional rights that, you know, that's the client's property that, you know, that law enforcement is using that without authority, without permission or consent or, or legal authority to use that, that cell phone to communicate to another person, you know, purporting to be the client. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would have an objection to that, but there is sort of this concept that law enforcement does not always need to be honest when they're trying, when they're investigating criminal cases. So that's a complicated legal question, but good defenders would would certainly say, no, law enforcement cannot use my client's property to communicate with other people, you know, purporting to be my client. That's that's a violation of his rights. The other person, you know, if they took the bait and, and said something, whether honest or not, would also say, you know, that was that was unauthorized by law enforcement to do that. So would it be a protection? I mean, this is probably paranoia, but if I, you know, I'm driving my car and I lock my cell phone in the glove box or the trunk, so if I'm pulled over, they they can't really access it. It would probably never happen. You know, if someone's that paranoid, obviously they're probably up to something no good. But I'm just curious about that scenario. So what's the scenario that you're laying out? That your cell phone is locked in a glove box or? Yeah, I'm driving my car and I, I worry if I get pulled over, they may try to take my phone. Whatever reason, so I put it in the in the glove box and I lock it. So the cell phone's not on my person; it's not in plain sight. You know, let's say law enforcement asked for it, but I'm like, well, it's, it's I don't have it. It's locked in the trunk or it's locked in the glove box. What happens then? Well, if you're arrested in that scenario, whether law enforcement can inventory the contents of the vehicle, you know, under an impound inventory that that would be an exception to the to the warrant requirement if it was justified and it was according to the police department's you know procedures but yeah i mean you know if if you get arrested and your car isn't coming with you your wife's there and she can take the vehicle you know she has got a driver's license the you know it's not a situation where they need to take the vehicle that would give you some additional protection but I think, you know, the biggest thing is just that baseline of, you know, not having having some protection on the device because, you know, really our cell phones, they have so much information about us. You know, they have, you can pretty much determine nowadays with younger folks and, and, and most people that use cell phones the way that most people do. I mean, you can learn a whole lot of information about a person by going through a fulsome extraction of their cell phone. Everywhere they've been, the apps that they're using, who their spouse is, you know, in, in the context of like like my cell phone, yeah, it's got all kinds of case matter material on there, privileged communications, you know, conversations, emails with, you know, with with my partners and opposing counsel. And, you know, I mean, there's there's just so much. If you pull down every one of your emails, every one of your text messages, your location information, right. 
medical history. I mean, it's it's a window into your soul, in the words of you know our Supreme Court and Riley. And so, you know, the baseline protection is don't have biometrics on your phone because it's easy to get into a phone with biometrics. You know, practically, but also kind of legally, there's less protection. And then having a you know a long alphanumeric passcode, and you don't need to have one that's twenty digits that you won't remember. But if you can you know, do a pattern that she'll remember, which I do, then that gives you a lot of protection, whether it be from, you know, law enforcement scrutiny, but also just, you know, somebody steals your phone and be able to get in there. I mean, I, I feel like I, I would feel much more secure that some stranger isn't rifling through my information and, you know, some pretty sensitive client material and case material having a really, you know, a longer passcode. Because, you know, it's really easy to to get around these things, especially if they're just, these, you know, basic four-digit passcode. Well, very good, Jonathan, time, but if you're open to it, I'd like to have you back for around two. We discussed a lot of cell phone stuff. That's where I took it. But the vehicle infotainment system, I think, is a whole other area. But for now, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And, you know, for those that want to speak to you about expert witnesses you might have access to, what's a good way for listeners to contact you if they're interested? So... My email is jbrayman, so J-B-R-A-Y-M-A-N, at Law. that's B-R-E-E-N-P-U-G-H-L-A-W.com. And I'd be happy to talk to you more about the vehicle component of it, because that's a really underdeveloped area technologically, but also in the law. You know, and it's distinct from cell phones where, you know, you and I have talked about you know, how to protect them and, you know, our cell phones, our computers, we think of, they're encrypted. You know, you, you have passcodes on them. And, you know, as far as I know, there's there's not a single vehicle manufacturer that allows you to protect the data that is on vehicles. So on the, you know, on the computers that are on vehicles, which, you know, can very much pull down the whole contents of your cell phone onto that infotainment system. And so, you know, part of their and you know why they, what why I guess people got really like up in arms and and activated by the idea that a rental car could have all your text messages and you know all this highly sensitive data was you know this clip from the founder of Burla was on this podcast talking about like laughing about like yeah you know you plug into you get a rental car you plug in and on you know they ask you whether you want to you know, sync your contact, right. everybody says, no, nobody's going to opt into that system, but no, with no permission, no consent, that rental car is, is, is pulling down all your text messages on this rental car. And, you know, it was like, I think that was really alarming to folks and, you know, seeing some of the comments on there, which my wife got a, a real kick out of when I was like, yeah, you know, looks like, you know, apparently this thing is, you know, gone kind of viral. My wife was going through the the comments kind of laughing, but you know, people thought like that it was like conspiracy theorist talk and I, it's no, like, no, no. no. Yeah. And then there's other people that are like, Oh yeah. You know, I worked at a rental car place for, you know, five years and absolutely that's the truth. And we, you know, we always reflash the system and, you know, but it, it's, it's wild that that's the way that those things are set up, especially nowadays, you know. Well, very good. Again, thank you for coming. I really appreciate your time and uh, your information. We'll have you back very shortly. Okay. Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.